This morning, we're looking at a passage of Scripture out of Mark chapter 5. Please turn in your Bibles there. Uh, You'll find it uh, in uh, the Gospel of Mark. Remember Matthew, Mark, second Gospel of the New Testament, one of the synoptic Gospels that is uh, given a, a very simple synopsis of the life of Jesus. Stands a little unique from John, the fourth gospel. A little different, but still telling the exact same story uh, and telling it uh, with complete consistency with the others. Mark is a very action-oriented gospel. He goes immediately from one place to the next, talking about the events of Jesus' life. In the Pew Bibles, if you got them, it's on page 840. Uh, I invite you to, 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 to turn to that page. Um, I was reminded as I was reading the story, and, and you're going to find as we talk about this particular story in the life of Jesus, I mean, it is a remarkable story, and Stephen King could not have written uh, something quite so, um, so horrific as what the disciples and Jesus encountered uh, as they crossed the sea over there. And I was thinking about my father and I, years and years ago, uh, we had just gotten cable. Not many folks, I mean, yes, dark ages, folks. Prior to that, you know, we all know I was my father's remote control. You know, get up and turn the channel. And, and, and it even lived in the day when, when, you know, when you'd have to spin that UHF knob really rapidly to get from like channel uh, 26 to 32 and things like that. And you spin it too fast and it breaks off. And, and well, then the channel changer becomes a pair of needle nose pliers, does it not? <laughs> My father and I were staying up late one night and we, we watched. I don't commend this. This is not telling you you should. We stayed up late one night and watched a scary movie. I know. Shouldn't have done it. There are, listen, listen, there are just some things that you cannot unsee. And, and Hollywood is masterful at creating images that impact our minds. We need to be careful what we take in through the eye gate. We need to be careful what we watch. Uh, we need to be careful how that grabs a hold of our heart. Well, now, we watched the movie all the way to the end, and as typical in these types of movies, the movie progressed, and there's all sorts of jumps and scares and that sort of thing. The house is dark. My mom and my little brothers are asleep. My dad and I are staying up and watching this movie. Well, we get to the end. The music gets all nice and calm. Everything looks peaceful. The police are showing up. The sun is coming up. It's going to be a happy ending. My father and I get up. We you know, knead up the... the pillows on the sofa, he straightens out his chair, we start turning off lights and the TV's still playing, and as we're standing there watching the last few minutes of the movie, all of a sudden the, the director and the, the, uh, the writers of this particular screenplay, well, they double-crossed us. And there was one last scare. It didn't have a happy ending, it was a horror compounded on the whole horror of things. Full disclosure, my dad and I, as we both jumped out of our skin in that last moment, we then sat back down, turned on all the lights, and, and we scanned all the channels to find a cartoon, a comedy. We found Three Stooges, and we watched that for a few minutes before our hearts settled down and we went to bed. It was a horror movie with a horror ending. This passage of Scripture, like I said, it's true history. It, it, it really happened. This is an event in the life of Jesus. Let's read it together. Uh, There in Mark chapter 5, I'll read aloud. I invite you to follow along as we uh, encounter Jesus and his disciples. Mark 5, first verse, we read, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. 
For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles into pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, this is Jesus saying to the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And the man begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out into the country. Now a great herd of pigs was there feeding on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. Well, the herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and the people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion. He was sitting there, clothed in his right mind. They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they all began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, and you tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how much he has had mercy on you. And so he went away, and he began to proclaim in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Pray with me. Lord, what a remarkable story. Father, I pray that we would not file this in the category of the fantastical, but, Father, upon the pages of history, which it is, for on this day, Lord, we rejoice to see the power and the love of our Savior. Father, the grass withers, the flower fades, but we thank you that your word endures forever. Amen. This, uh, this particular passage has been the topic of much, much, much discussion and debate. Matter of fact, it, it attracted the attention of, of the, uh, a very prominent early uh, 20th century philosopher, uh, Bertrand Russell. Um, he uh, is a British philosopher, and he was very outspoken, and he wrote a book that says, uh, Why I Am an Atheist. He was explaining why he did not believe. And he particularly quoted this passage. And he was just appalled at the waste of pigs. He he was astonished at the fantastic nature of this. And he quoted that this was just too crazy to be believed. My friends, as we read God's word, we must constantly be reminded. See, we, we love stories. We love tales. We watch movies. Even uh, there has become a, a category of, of literature, and it's, it's been around, but it's very, very prominent now, historical fiction. Historical fictions, they're fun to read. And it's basically where you take some basic facts of history and you construct a narrative around it that may or may not be true. Uh, you take particular people and you assign to them some things that may or may not have happened. You kind of assume some things that might have been the case. We need to be very, very careful that we guard against ever approaching God's word that way. God's Word is faithful. God's Word is inerrant. It is infallible. 
It will accomplish all that God intends for it. And when we read it, we know we can trust it. When it says this happened, it happened. And what's really wonderful and remarkable is, uh, as we were talking about in beginning a couple of the classes, beginning to, to look at the story of Esther, and you start reading about the archaeology, trying to determine what was going on there in the, the reign of the Persians, and, and archaeologists uh, for generations would say things of that, of Jericho, of other places. There's no record of these places ever existing. And then somebody in some remote location will take a shovel and turn over a bit of sand, and there they will find uh, evidence of the civilizations that God has spoken of in his word. Uh, the archaeologist is the, the biblical interpreter's friend, for we turn the spade, and there you find proof that God's telling the truth. So here's what we see. We see this amazing situation. The disciples have come across the Sea of Galilee with Jesus. Now, a couple of weeks ago, my friend, uh, Chaplain Bill Lampkin, told you the story uh, that we read about Jesus calming the storm. Remember, uh, the disciples were afraid in the storm, but as the text tells us, they were even more terrified by what happened next. Jesus told the storm to be still, and they were amazed at the, the power the man who speaks and the storm subsides and the seas become still. An amazing event. And then they continue across the sea. And, and they come upon land. And as they come upon land, they're uh, amazed at, at what they encounter. Can you put yourselves in their shoes? What would you say? What would you say if you came into the land of the Gadarenes and, and, and there you encountered this man in the tombs? What would you say, Mary Francis? What in tarnation? <laughs> I promised her I would work that word into a sermon one day. <laughs> they were shocked. The, the, this, this region was known as the region of the Gadarenes. Now, here's the several times when this story is related, you will see several very similar words. These are no mistakes. It's, it's, it's similar to, uh, to speaking of regions in our country today. You see, uh, there were several towns and regions in that area. The town of Garasser was to the southeast of where they were coming in. The town of Gadara was a bit more inland, and there was a town on the shore called Gargasa. So these are three very similar towns. So hence, this demoniac and the people of this region are sometimes called the Gerasenes. Sometimes they're called the Gargasenes or the Gadarenes. This is no mistake. This is no misspelling. These were, were towns in the region. And, and so it'd be like speaking of us as Milbrookians. Is that what we are? No? What? <laughs> Elmorons. El Alabamians. Right, Americans, it's just it's a way of referring to them. That's what was known. But here's some things you need to know about it. Uh, is, um, is verse 20 makes it clear that they were in a region known as the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten polis, uh, the word for cities, the region of the ten cities. And this was not a Jewish region. There's several evidences to that extent, is it not? Well, first off, we see that there was at least uh, a herd of 2,000 swine right there. 2,000 swine, uh, the Jewish people would not have kept pigs. Remember, they were un, an unclean animal that was not pork, uh, was not in their diet. They were not allowed to raise pigs. We see the story of the prodigal son, and that was really uh, a horrible sentence for him to be in the slop, tending the pigs, even desiring to eat the food of the pigs. Mark makes this clear uh, that they were in a God-forsaken region. 
But even beyond that, not only were there, there pigs in the region being raised, but this was a, a region of tombs uh, to, to dwell among those who were unclean. Uh, to be among the dead was to be in an unclean uh, region. Uh, this was a Roman territory filled with Gentiles, and it is a region that was annexed about 63 years before the birth of Jesus. So within uh, 60 to 100 years before this event, uh, the uh, Pompeii actually annexed this region and brought it into the kingdom. It was filled with pigs. It was a place of death. And so living there among the dead, we see this particular character. Now, when we talk about cemeteries, we talk about tombs. Again, we need to go back in history a little bit. Living in Savannah for about 12 years, one of the most popular things to do is to go and visit cemeteries. Bonaventure Cemetery. Uh, It's a beautiful cemetery right on a, a bluff on the river. People would go and walk through there. And you'd walk in the grass and you'd see the monuments and it was well maintained and of historical significance. A friend of mine had his mechanic shop there and when I would go and help him, uh, there in the shop, we would, we would go over and we'd take lunch and we'd just go for a walk, stretch our legs uh, there in the cemetery. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about grass and monuments. We're talking about caves and corpses. Uh, this would have been a region where the, where the dead were just, were just put out there to, to rot. Sorry to be gross, but this is the situation. And there was a man that lived right in there. But this was a man of, of remarkable and horrific Proportion. He was supernaturally strong. It said uh, that chains were hanging off of him because they would try to bind him and he would break them. Now, police will tell you stories. I'm sure Donald could, could talk of things that he has seen and others have seen of people who have uh, manifested what would appear to be supernatural strengths when they're high on drugs. Uh, one story uh, was in the newspaper of a, of a man who, who actually drove his fist uh, through the front windshield of a, of a police vehicle. Uh, it shattered every bone in his body, but you've got to understand that this man, this man here, the demons who possessed him, had no desire to preserve his life, to take care of his body, that he would have been able to wrench these chains and break things because he had, had no care, no care at all because of the demons that possessed him about his body. And think about the region as, as he lived. The shrieks must have been terrifying. Like I said, Hollywood could not come up with a more horrific moment. Can you imagine living in the villages near there, the ten cities near there, and as you would journey past and you would hear echoing off the rocks and not knowing exactly where it was coming from, but the shrieks and the horrific yelling of this man in the middle of the night bouncing off the walls, what terror it is. As we look at this passage, one thing that comes up crystal clear is the reality of the demonic in this world. I don't say that to terrify you like Hollywood would seek to do so or me and my father in the middle of the night watching what we shouldn't watch. But we need to understand that that there is a real spirit war, a real spirit world. C.S. Lewis, in speaking about this, he said, we can fall in the ditch in one of two ways. That's the Alabama translation of Lewis, fall in the ditch in one of two ways. He said, basically, you can give the devil too much or you can give him too little attention. That we can, we can ascribe to him more power than he has. He is not equal with God. He is not the dark side of the force to the light side of the force equal. He is not the yin or the yang. He is not the equal of God. 
But as Luther penned in his hymn, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But there is one little word that will fell him, and that is the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord Sabaoth, his name. We give him too much due when we say, the devil is tempting me. The devil is not omnipresent. The devil is not everywhere. But his, his demons are hard at work, and our sinful nature uh, is a willing accomplice to them way too often. But we can also pay little, too little attention. It was the French poet, uh, <laughs> Alabama pronunciation, uh, Baudelaire, In 1864, he wrote this, My dear brothers, never forget, when you hear of the the progress of the Enlightenment, don't ever forget that the devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. That's the reality of what we see. Now, demonic possession is real, and we find it accelerated. We find it turbocharged in the day of Jesus. Why not? In the day of Jesus, at the epicenter of redemptive history, absolutely the forces of evil would be marshaled to fight, even though they know their doom is sure. But they would fight because they seek to create havoc, damage, and destruction. Now, in in verse 4, we read, it says, What do you have to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? He knew who he was encountering. He knew the man who approached. He believed and he trembled and he addressed Jesus as the most high God, this, this pitiful man, this pathetic man, this man who others looked at as a monster, this man who didn't know love, this man who didn't have a family, he could not have contact, he couldn't cook for himself, he couldn't wash, his only companion were corpses and rodents, he was a prisoner, and he looked, he says, what have you to do with me, O son of the most high God? We think of the reaction of the world so often when we bring Jesus to them and they say, what does he want from me? Oh, but think about what happens here. And think about what Jesus does want. Let's consider it as we go on. Jesus addresses the inhabitants of this man. He says, what is your name? And the demons reply, legion, for we are many. Now a legion, a Roman legion, would have consisted of upwards of of 6,000 foot soldiers. There probably would have been something like 120 horsemen that would have been accompanied in a legion. Surely this man had watched the legions of soldiers uh, marching through the region hour after hour, and he boasts now to Jesus, we are legion, we are strong. Is Jesus going to be intimidated by this? Is Jesus going to be weak? I I would certainly be intimidated. What a horrific statement. Oh, you don't encounter a demon. You encounter an army. Now, there is great and evil wickedness in this world, friends. Encountered the death of dear friends when I was pastoring years ago mother and a father, murdered by their son, butchered in an early morning ambush, a son strung out on drugs, dear friends, an elder in my church, a man with whom Carol and Thomas and I lived for for several months as we were preparing to pastor there, sat in a room with him, an intimidating room in the midst of Holman Prison. Atmore, death row. To, to, to look across and to see into the eyes of somebody that could slaughter 
his parents. And we live in a world where this happens. It happens. We grieve. We know that this was not, this is not the desire of God that we would live in a world of murder and death. But the God who created us in perfection and it's because of our sin that we see the depths. We see the darkness. One of the questions I, I, I ask people all the time as we study an overview of the Old Testament I love doing this. When you read the Old Testament and we read Genesis 1, we read Genesis 2, and we see the the creation story, we see the perfection of the garden, but then in Genesis 3 we see the sin and the fall, the curse. And the simple question is this, wouldn't seminary be a lot shorter? Wouldn't Bible school be much simpler? If Genesis 1 and 2 you have creation, Genesis 3 you have the fall, and Genesis 4 we see Jesus. Genesis 3, we find the promise of Jesus, by the way. We'll look at that in a second. But Genesis 4, we see what? Cain, Abel, murder. We see the depths to which sin falls. It's not simply the rebellion against God and eating the forbidden fruit, but it's all that accompanies that. It is the rank sin that we find on the pages of the Old Testament, the New Testament, and in the history of the world that needs Jesus. And we need to understand that that is our inheritance if it was not for Jesus. So what happens? The demons implore Jesus. They say, do not torment us. They knew torment. Oh my, didn't they? They knew pain. They knew torture. These are demons of hell. And they begged Jesus. And they asked to be sent into a herd of swine. These 2,000 pigs that are nearby. You have to ask, why did they want to go into the pigs? I've got a theological answer for you. I don't know. <laughs> I've got speculation. I've, I've got some ideas. I, I do believe that, that what you do see in this whole story is you see uh, demons that are literally hell-bent on destruction and, and causing strife and causing chaos and knew what, what all would go on in that region when this great source of income runs headlong into the sea and Jesus permits it. And we ask the question then, why did Jesus permit this? I've got another theological answer. Jesus permits it because he does. The power of Jesus is undeniable. He could destroy Satan and his demons in a moment, but we live in what we refer to as the already and the not yet. We, this, is, this is a theological phrase. This is a theological answer. We live in the already and the not yet. The already meaning that Jesus has accomplished all that is needed for our salvation. Satan is defeated. He he declared, it is finished, and it is finished. All that's needed for our salvation has been accomplished. And yet, as uh, Paul talks about in in Romans chapter 7, he talks about the fact that we still continue to struggle with sin. We struggle with evil in this world. We, We long for that day of perfection, glorification, and ultimate fulfilled redemption. We long for that day. We live in already, Jesus has saved us, but we live in the not yet, that one day when we will fly away like the choir said. And so then, the pigs, they run off the cliff. I can only imagine those watching would have held up (laughs) 10.0. It was a really incredible swine dive. (laughs) No, no, I'm sorry. That was was too easy, but it was the first recorded mass event of suicide. It, it lends itself. It's, it's, it's a crazy scene. So they looked there. They sat there and they looked out there over the Bay of Pigs. And 
that was the last one. It, 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 it is a, it's a, a ridiculous scene, the idea, and, and we need to understand that, that the plots and the schemes of Satan, as, as wicked and chaotic as they are, they indeed are ridiculous because they, they serve to no extent. They serve only for destruction. They serve to, to bring chaos and pain. And the herdsmen, they run and they tell the townspeople. They tell the townspeople, they come running, and what happens? They see the demoniac, and he's there, and he's calm, and he's in his right mind, it says. What a remarkable thing. He's clothed. This man who is naked and bloody and disgusting is conversing as you and I would, clothed in his right mind. And verse 16 says, they were afraid. In the very same way, when we see the aftermath and the effect of the power of Jesus, it brings us to a moment of holy fear. To look and to see there is an awe as we encounter creation. There's an awe as we look at the oceans and we look at the power of creation. And just as the disciples who were, who were scared in the boat, they were terrified when they knew that the one in the boat caused the ocean and the storm to cease its fury. And they in the presence of God there, God in the flesh, they were scared. The miracle of the healed man, it was all too much and they want Jesus to leave. They all want Jesus to leave. The financial impact, it was too much. You, you, you brought us great loss. Uh, plus, we don't understand what's going on, and we were unable to, to bind this man, and yet you, with a word, could set him free. This is too fearful for us. You have to leave, Jesus. Leave our shore. And so Jesus and his disciples, they get into the boat and they leave, but the, the one who comes back to him, the healed man comes back. He wants to go with Jesus, and Jesus looks at him and he says, No, no, you stay. A lot of questions about why he would be asked to stay, why he would be told that he had to remain there. Well, one is he was a, a Gentile, and, and, and he might, in that moment, it not have been the right time for he to be numbered among the disciples of Jesus. But I think there's something even more than that, that he was commissioned there to be a missionary, a living testimony, a word of hope right there on those shores. So this horror story, it has a happy ending. This this terrifying story is not a Hollywood creation, but it's the reality of the gospel message proclaimed to a world that needs to hear it. We, we see several points, several things that we learn from this story. Let me give you just a, a few points to take with you as we go today. First, we do see that reality of evil and demonic activity. Ephesians chapter 6 speaks of this. It says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? What do we wrestle against? Well, against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. We see the reality of evil in this world, and we are to stand firm in the power of God, clothed in His armor, Ephesians 6 says, His armor, His construction, His power, His authority. And, and know this, we don't encounter evil in this world often, as nasty as we see it here, rarely do we see something as ferocious as this. Instead, evil comes dressed in church clothes. We see that the devil masquerades as an angel of light, right? I remember years ago in, in college, uh, Oprah Winfrey had just kind of started doing her, her show in the afternoons, and she was publicizing for several weeks that she'd be having devil worshipers on her show. And so a bunch of college students, we were kind of interested in seeing what this is going to look like. We pictured, you know, people coming out looking bizarre in outlandish clothes, and we saw the most distinguished-looking group of men and women in business clothes coming out and speaking the most respectable way, and they explained, 
uh, that, that they did not uh, worship the devil of the Bible, the, the misinterpretation of what they worshiped that. And they went on to talk about pride. They went on to paint a rosy picture of the sinful way that they live pursuing the uh, things of this world rather than the things of God. So uh, that Satan came respectively dressed that day to persuade and to woo a sin if it were not attractive, if it were not pleasurable in the moment, would have no lure to us. And evil, evil comes masquerading as good. We also see the, the amazing power of Jesus. And we see that His power is over all of the effects of sin. We saw that back in Genesis chapter 3. Remember the fall? We see the idea of uh, sickness, of injury. We see the world uh, being a world that is cursed, thorns and thistles growing. And we see Jesus to be uh, empowered over all of this. He cures sicknesses. He restores injuries. He brings the dead to life. We see His power over nature, and we see His power even over the devil. In Genesis 3.15, as I said, we call that the Proto-Euangelion, the first evangelism, the first promise of the gospel, when, when, uh, when the Lord God, in speaking to the serpent, says, yes, there will come a seed of the woman, and you will bruise his heel, and he will crush your head. And in this moment, we see Jesus deliver not the crushing blow, but an establishment of his authority over the principalities of this world. And so this is recorded that we would have confidence in the one that we worship and his power. But he doesn't just show power. And let me leave you with this, brothers and sisters. What is really wonderful is that this power is coupled with the love of God. We look back in, in chapter 4. Just flip back just a page in the Bible there. In chapter 4, verse 35, remember Jesus had said to his disciples, this is before the storm, he said, come, let us go across to the other side. And they get into the boat, they weather the storm, they go across the Sea of Galilee. And in less than a few hours, he gets back in his boat and he leaves those shores. You have to ask, why does he come and go like this? I have to suggest to you today that Jesus came and went from the land of the Gadarenes. He went and encountered this horrific sight to save that man. The extremes to which our Savior goes to bring salvation, even to the one, the shepherd, who goes over mountains and hills to retrieve that one lost sheep. Jesus takes his disciples all the way to this God-forsaken land to rescue one miserable, lonely, wretched, pathetic human being. That's the Savior that I love. That is the Savior, more importantly, that loves me. That's the one that I pray that we all know this day.